As I mentioned this morning, we have the opportunity to partake in a long-running series on the one another's of the New Testament, how fitting I think this is going to be for us as we have combined our ministries and we are looking to see very practically how the Lord will meld us together over time. And it seemed to me that one of the better one another's, because I'm not choosing to do it canonically as Old and or New Testament brings it to us, I thought it would be well for us to start with encourage one another. Encourage one another. And as we begin this long-running series on the one another's of the New Testament particularly, I want to start with this encourage one another phrase, and specifically, if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. This seems to be, in the New Testament corpus of material, a hotbed of the need for encouragement from the Apostle Paul to those who were discouraged or troubled. And in 1 Thessalonians, you find a number of places where the concept of encouragement is listed for us. If you look first at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you have in the last section from verses 13 to 18, the coming of the Lord. This is a section, of course, in which the Thessalonians were both asking questions and troubled about when the Lord might be coming back to receive His people for His own. And in fact, in verse 13 it says, does the Apostle Paul, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those Christians who have already died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Of course, unbelievers. For since, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died will be coming back with the Lord to meet us who remain alive. For this we declare, he says in verse 15, to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And with that teaching, Paul says in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. It's critical to be encouraged. In fact, he says in chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then yet again, just a few verses later, Chapter 5, verse 14, that was read earlier. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And he gives here what appears to be a, a certain set of categories that people will find themselves. There are going to be some in the fellowship who are idle or unruly. That's a military term that means they are out of step, out of cadence. And because they are willfully stepping out of bounds from the normal order of things, from obedience to Jesus and His commands, we are to admonish them. And we're going to talk about that next time. Admonish one another. But notice that second phrase, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. This is a place where we need to camp out on. Encourage the faint-hearted. And that's what I want us to do by taking primarily that phrase, encourage the faint-hearted, and I want to pick it apart because this is part and parcel of what it means, I think, centrally to encourage one another, especially the faint-hearted. 1 Thessalonians 5.14b. And I want to give you three outline points, three principles in which to follow this very idea. And the first is the command to obey. The command to obey. Simply stated, he commands the Thessalonians to encourage the faint-hearted. It is a command. And within these list of four separate commands, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, these are injunctions. They are commands. We are to follow them. We are to be a part of the body of Christ in these ways. And so he says, you are to handle someone who is faint-hearted by encouraging them. Encouraging them. And I suppose the foremost question is, what is meant by the term faint-hearted? Well, it's a fascinating concept. It's really two Greek words that have apparently been combined, and when you combine them to come up with this word faint-hearted, it's used only here in the New Testament, this particular word. And you combine these two words. The first word is oligos, oligos, which means little or small. And the second word is sukos, from which we get the word psychology. And that word, of course, means the soul, the soul. You put the two together in this particular context, and it means someone who is small-souled, someone whose soul is little, it's shrinking. And that's why we translate it in this ESV text, faint-hearted. Their soul is small. The New International Version translates it as timid. Timid. I looked at several lexicons. Lexicon is a Greek dictionary that gives you dictionary definitions of particular words. And I rummaged around and I came up with various definitions about this concept of being faint-hearted. Here's one. One who feels his resources are too small for a given situation. He feels overwhelmed. 
Here's another. Despondent. Discouraged. Worried. Fearful. Here's yet another. To lose heart and wish to drop out. Be quitters. Here's yet another. They are members who have become discouraged for some reason, perhaps because of adverse circumstances or because of their deep consciousness of their own sinfulness, causing them to despair of being able to live the Christian life. This is a, this is a troubled soul. It's a small-souled individual who's timid, he's discouraged, he's despondent, she has a sense of inadequacy, she lacks heart, lacking self-confidence, we might say. It may be that the person believes that he or she lacks certain gifts or certain talents. They could be discouraged about his or her service within the body of Christ. Possibly it could involve someone who's anxious about their relationship with the Lord, uh, thinking that they may or may not be inferior uh, to other Christians. Maybe they're continually dealing with doubts. Doubts about their sanctification, doubts about others, doubts about their judgment, their ability to discern, or possibly the judgment of others and how others perceive them. Could be struggling with fear, fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future. And maybe, according to the context of this entire epistle, and specifically chapter 4, verse 13, they were concerned, as I said, about their fellow Christians who had already died and who might have become very, very anxious about the certainty of the destiny of those persons. But, but whatever it is, particularly or generally, they're small-souled and they need our assistance. They need us to come alongside them. And how does the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us to deal with such a person? Here's what he commands us to do. Here's a present tense imperative. This is, this is a present tense. It means it is to happen regularly. It's an imperative. It means that it should happen by way of God's command and our obedience. Here's what we do. We encourage the faint-hearted. We don't admonish the faint-hearted. Likewise, we don't encourage the unruly, right? You encourage the unruly, and what do they do? They become more unruly. And if someone's faint-hearted and you admonish them, what happens to them? They become more faint-hearted. We are to encourage. Great word. Paramutheomai. It encompasses this idea, to encourage, to exhort sometimes often translated exhort, to comfort, to console. Don't admonish him, don't admonish her because she's faint-hearted, he's faint-hearted. Encourage them, console them, comfort them because they're in need of that kind of counsel. And this is exactly what Paul himself modeled for the Thessalonians. This was, this was Paul's heart. He didn't want to console the unruly. He wanted to encourage the faint-hearted and admonish the unruly. And when it was time to admonish, he was not slack in doing it. And when it was time to console the faint-hearted, he was eager to do such a thing. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
This is Paul. This was his heart for the small-souled people around him. In fact, just about everybody except the unruly, this is how Paul acted among them. Notice what he says. He says in chapter 2, verse 7, but we were gentle among you. Gentle. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we, we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. There's a derivative of our word, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here was Paul. He was the the wonderful balance, not sinless balance, but the wonderful balance between a gentle nursing mother and an imploring, exhorting, encouraging father. Now I know sometimes that's a tough balance with the flock. And yet Paul was able somehow and in some way to find out what their needs were, especially those who were small-souled, and he didn't trample on them. He rather encouraged, he he exhorted them, he implored them as a father would his own children. And that's what we must do spiritually for those around us. Absolutely so. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He says, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort and encourage you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. It's always encouraging. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, in other words, he sent Timothy to be a great encourager and exhorter for your faith. And now he says in verse 6 that Timothy has come to us from you. Timothy's now giving Paul a report about Paul's sending him there. And he says, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been encouraged comforted about you through your faith you get the idea that they sort of loved each other that they were committed to each other this is this is the command to obey and it is not easy to obey seems to me that it's often far more easy to admonish the unruly than it is to work hard at, incur- at encouraging the small-souled to come alongside them. I mean, it's, it's, it's easier to go to someone and say, ship up, ship up or shape out, come on. Look, you're off track, you're out of cadence, let's get with it, come on, let's do it. It's a lot more difficult, it seems, to encourage 
the small-souled individual. You have to spend time. You have to come alongside. You have to comfort them, encourage them. But it is nonetheless, nonetheless a command to obey. Secondly, it's not just a command to obey. It's the counsel to use. It's the counsel to use. It is not uncommon, is it, to encounter people who lack the confidence to stand on their own? Who are small-souled and who are in need of substantive comfort from us? I mean, there are people with all kinds of smallish souls wrapped up in many different kinds of outside covers. Isn't it true? I mean, it, it doesn't mean just because you're wealthy that you've got a large soul, that you're growing internally. As someone once said, no man is so poor as the one who has only money. It's not just because you're poor that you're small-souled. There are a lot of people who are poor who are just very happy, very content with life, great encouragements. doesn't matter if you're young, and if you are young and you are looking at the prospects of living in this wicked world, and you become small-souled at the prospect of all of the dangers around us, or you're old and you're looking at your youth and you've got great discouragement for how you've lived your life and now you become small-souled, you can't put any of that in one package in one person. It's a myriad of things and sometimes it's gradations of all of the above in all of the people in the life of the church. This is also most interesting. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also takes this particular word to encourage, and it translates it variously. Look in the ESV of Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. This is, this is a kind of a kaleidoscope of ways to translate this similar idea of being small-souled, and it helps sort of fill out our thinking on the subject. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14. It's a very interesting proverb. A man's spirit, Proverbs 18, 14, will endure sickness. I mean, someone who is sick and knows that they're sick and continues to be sick, can continue to endure. He will endure the sickness. Why? Because he believes that after a time, the sickness will go away, right? And he'll be able to endure because the sickness only lasts for a time. That's the general idea. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, that's our word, faint-hearted. A crushed spirit, who can bear? This is a person that is really down. Really down. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. This also, this oligosukos is translated in the Septuagint in Isaiah 35 verse 4 this way. Say to those who have an anxious heart. There's our phrase, oligos sukos. Say to those who are faint-hearted, be strong, 
Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. When people are spiritually discouraged, they're down, they're anxious, translated here as an anxious heart, they need our encouragement. Look at chapter 54. Chapter 54, beginning in verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. There's our term. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, this is, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking as though from God himself, and he says, yes, it is true that you were like a wife to me, and I deserted you, and as a result, you became grieved in your spirit. You became small-souled. And yes, like a wife, when you were cast off from me, for a brief moment I did desert you. Why? It was because of your sin. It was because you were not responding obediently to the Lord your God. But notice how God counsels, but with great compassion I will gather you. It's only going to be for a moment that I turn my face away. It's only going to be that I hide my face from you until I return to you again with everlasting love and have compassion on you. Don't you know that that's exactly what the faint-hearted person desperately needs? And we're all going to go through it. We're all going to be faint-hearted at some point, like you want to give up, like there's no tomorrow. Chapter 57 of Isaiah's prophecy, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Some of us have lowly spirits. We, we need this kind of counsel. We need this, this example of the Lord our God. We'll talk about that more in a moment. We need to counsel this way. We need to take this command, encourage the faint-hearted, and say, this has got to be one of the top commands on my list in the body of Christ, to encourage the faint-hearted around me. Oh, yes, there'll be plenty of time to admonish the unruly. Trust me. There'll be time to help the weak, and there certainly will be time, it's all the time, to be patient with all people. But there'll be those select moments, those providentially engineered opportunities to look at someone and say, I can tell that they are probably very small-souled at the moment. And I have an opportunity to see this command to be obeyed in their life by me. God, use me in their lives. 
and there's a certain counsel to use. And I want you to see some. I want you to write down some of these passages. If I go too quickly, you can at least write them down, even if you don't look all of them up. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. These again all give us the sense of the counsel to use with the small-souled person, with the faint-hearted, with someone who's lowly in their spirit. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is one of those passages in the book of Hebrews warning those who are looking at Christ, who have professed Christ, and yet who are looking backwards to their Judaism and saying, did I make the wrong choice? Did I make the wrong commitment? Notice verse 13, but exhort... There's our word, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And you know there will be a category of people who are struggling with whether or not they're Christians at all. They lack assurance. They don't know if they're really saved. They don't know if they have a genuine relationship with the Lord. And this passage says you've got to go to them and you've got to exhort them. And notice what it says, but exhort one another how long? Every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may, in a sense, be continually hardened by the deceitfulness of sin For if we really do truly share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession, our confidence firm to the end, we're going to need these brothers and sisters to come alongside us and encourage us continually because we're faint-hearted about whether or not we have the true assurance so as to know the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is very, very practical stuff. This is the counsel to use in certain situations that you may encounter with brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at chapter 10, the famous verses in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another, that's another one of those one another's, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, that's what we're doing here this evening, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In my Bible, the word day is capitalized, capital D, the day of Christ, the day of His return. You know what? There's a specific context here, but you could generalize it out and say this. Every single day of our lives, we're one day closer to eternity, right? That being the case, all the more of your encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. This is is the encouragement that we desperately, desperately need, especially those who are soulishly shriveling. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And I'm giving you these passages so that you can write them down, you can have them at the ready, so that when someone comes, you'll know how to counsel them. This is the counsel to use for the small-souled. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, 
in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul didn't found the church in Colossae or Laodicea, but he wants to encourage them. And therefore, he says in verse 2 that their hearts, your hearts, the Laodiceans and the Colossians, that your hearts may be what? Encouraged. To the degree that through that encouragement you are being knit together in love. And for what purpose, Paul? To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery that is Jew and Gentile in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He says, There are some men... Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, my Jewish brethren, my brothers in the Lord, Jewish as they are, and they have been a comfort and encouragement to me. Boy, we need that encouragement. Need it desperately. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Oh, how we need this encouragement. And do you know, if you're, a, if you're a genuine believer, if you really, really know Jesus Christ personally, if you're on your way to heaven, then you are already encouraged. Now, you may need to be encouraged more, ever more, in your encouraging need to know Christ, to make Him known. But if you're in Christ, you are already encouraged because Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and we could say it this way because of the class condition of the Greek text, and we are, if there is any encouragement in Christ and we have that encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love and there is, if there is any participation in the Spirit and every true Christian is a part of the Spirit of God, any affection and sympathy, and we do have that affection and that sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, verse 3, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." follow his example. Know that if you're in Christ, there is an oozing of encouragement in Christ. You and I desperately need to be encouraged. Look at verse 19 of that same chapter. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. He was always sending Timothy. He was always saying, you need encouragement? Timothy's on the way. Timothy must have been so encouraging. He must have been like Barnabas, right? The word Barnabas translated is son of encouragement. Oh, oh, you need encouragement? Timothy, I've got another assignment for you. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered. That's our word. I may be encouraged by news of you. 
And you know what that tells me? That tells me that when Paul, who trusts Timothy, sends Timothy to get a report, and Timothy comes back and gives such a report, and it's a good report, that Paul is even encouraged by the news that they're doing well. Now, that's a thankful man. That's an encouraged brother. Hey, I'm just hearing news, and it cheers me up. Your faith. This is so wonderful. He says in verse 24, I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What a guy. I would have loved to have known Timothy. This is, this is a great man. And by the way, even though it's not the same word, Paul at times had to say to Timothy about Timothy, stop being timid. We all need it. We all must have it. Look at Romans chapter 12. And I'm giving you enough passages to choke a horse. These are all passages that you need to use in your encouragement ministry. Write these as a note to somebody. Just pick all the ones I'm giving you and just write out a note to someone and say, let me encourage you. Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 6. This is actually a part of the ministering opportunities that we have. Romans 12, 6, having gifts, I believe that's better translated opportunities, having opportunities that differ according to the grace given to us because we're all going to be in different spheres of influence and those opportunities will come our way. They're not going to come to everybody, but they'll come uh, to those in a particular sphere. And he says, therefore, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Notice verse 8, the one who exhorts, encourages in his exhortation, in his encouragement. If you have a particular propensity, desire, ministry to encourage, and there are some people who do. I have certain people in my life who seem to delight in nothing but encouraging me. My wife's one of them. And boy, do we need it, don't we? Oh, we so desperately need it, especially when your soul becomes a little shriveled up. Look at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Verse 4, and I love this because it doesn't relegate itself to only passages about encouragement. It talks about the entirety of Scripture as an encouragement. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That's the entirety of the Old Testament that through endurance and through the encouragement of the what? The Scriptures, we might have hope. Listen, my dear friends, the Scripture in a myriad of ways has been given to us, but one of them is so that it could give us the hopeful encouragement that we need. Share Scripture with people, which means you need to know Scripture, which means you need to be reading Scripture. Share with people. Let me encourage you. Write a note of encouragement. Send an email. Pick up the phone. Talk to somebody in person. Just say, let me encourage you. You may have been down because of this or that. I want to encourage your heart. You want to be able to come alongside someone to 
encourage them with the Scripture, because of the Scripture, in the Scripture, for the Scripture, through the Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. I love this. Until I come, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to encouragement, to teaching. This is what the Scripture can, can be for us. It's our great encouragement. I, I can't tell you but that the myriad of times in the decades of my Christian life that I've been small-souled and I didn't have someone at the ready, a person, a friend, a confidant, a hero, an example, a model to come alongside me to encourage me at the moment. It may have been the circumstances. It may have been that I just didn't have the opportunity. But I can always, through the Scripture, gain great encouragement, right? Always. Memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture, using Scripture, reading Scripture. Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to read the Scripture publicly. And as I do so, and before I come, until I come to do such a thing, I want you to do the very same thing with regard to the Scriptures, to exhortation, to encouragement, and to teaching. I hope those passages are encouraging to you. You say, well, they are because there's so many of them. I have a lot of work to do. Yeah, well, that's true. But do you know also, in addition to the command to obey, the counsel to use, we also have the character to follow. Thirdly, the character to follow. We also have models. We have examples. I read one to you, and that was the Father, our Heavenly Father, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, right? Specifically, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. That's why I read it to you. God is the God of all encouragement. That's what the Scripture says. Take God at His word. Believe Him to be the God of all encouragement, all comfort. He will comfort you. If you're a believer in Christ, He will comfort you by His character. And He's the greatest model of all to follow. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. This is, this is our model. Our God, our God and Father. Hebrews chapter 6. This is, this is a great model of one who is an, an encourager by his very character. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18, it says, So that by two unchangeable things, that's God and Himself, that's God making a promise to Himself in which it is impossible for God to lie. If He makes a promise to you, He will keep that promise. He will not fall away from such a promise. And the writer to Hebrews says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement through this God who doesn't lie to hold fast to the hope set before us. Lord, I know you're going to take me all the way to the end. You will. You promise that you will. That's the Father and the Son. The Son and His character is a model to follow. I read to you Philippians 2, right? He's the ultimate model, the ultimate example of what Paul said there in Philippians. Look, I don't want you to have empty conceit. 
I don't want you to consider your own needs as more important than others. I want you to submerge your needs as valid as they are to the needs of others. And I want you to see the ultimate example of the person who wasn't selfish, who wasn't self-centered. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at his life because he came from the eternal heavens And he left that position so that he could become obedient as a slave, even the slave as one who went to death on that cross. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's he's the ultimate human example. And here's another one, and we'll camp on this for a little bit. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. All of you turn there because we're going we're gonna to show you something that I trust will be a genuine encouragement to you about how the Lord Jesus lived his life with the small-souled people around him. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 15, Jesus was aware of those who were conspiring against him, Verse 14 says, and in verse 15 it says, Jesus, aware of this conspiring against him, people who wanted to destroy him, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known, just so that he wouldn't be known as the miracle worker. And yet, notice what verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant whom I have chosen. God speaking of Jesus, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And then notice verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew, quoting Isaiah, and if you looked at Isaiah 42, you don't have to look there, but in verses 1 to 4 it says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. I mean, when you read the Isaiah text, you almost get the sense that the bruised reeds and the dimly burning wicks are the helpless and the weak. And I think for the most part they are. The orphans and the widows, those who can't defend themselves. Those who are the downtrodden, the beaten, the broken, living just shattered lives. It's almost as though they're they're at their end with the reed just about ready to be discarded. And the smoldering wick just about ready to be snuffed out. And you know what? These could well have been the people in Thessalonica. Down and outers. Outcast. 
the hurting, the besieged, the ignored, the harshly treated. This could relate to the mercy ministries that we should be involved in, right? Outreach, responding to people. And it could be from some level what their sin has brought to them. Some cases it might not be their personal sin, but how someone has sinned against them. Could be the Matthew 25 people. Well, when, Lord? When did we do this? And, and when did that happen? Oh, in that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, right? Or it might even be the Hebrews 12, 3 people. Remember the prisoners as those in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. What are we doing with the broken reeds and the dimly lit wicks? They're faint-hearted, they're small-souled. Matthew says the way Jesus dealt with those kinds of people, he didn't break off those reeds, cast them aside. He didn't snuff out the dimly burning wicks. By the way, in the ancient world, a reed might have been used in a variety of ways, in a flute, maybe a measuring rod or a pen. They were so easy to come by, cheap to purchase, you wouldn't even think about discarding a damaged one for a new one. Just, just toss it aside. It doesn't matter. It's cheap. I mean, think of the fragility of a reed. Right? You're playing a flute. The reed has been used so much, it's wet, becomes splintered, and you just don't even think about it as a flautist. You just take that reed away and just throw it away and just get a new one. It's of no value anymore. Or the concept of a smoking wick. It's a little thin piece of cloth. It's burned down to just that, that little piece that's left. And you wouldn't even think twice about replacing it with a brand new one so that the lamp would burn even ever so more brightly. You know, we're not talking about literal reeds, literal wicks. We're talking about people. That's who Jesus was talking about. He wouldn't think about discarding them, right? In fact, it says in that Isaiah text and the Matthew text, he doesn't do that until he leads them to victory. A lot of faint-hearted people in the world, even in the church. You and I have a role, I think. Maybe we should start a ministry called Broken Reeds and just find out how many are in that category. Smoldering wicks. Probably the greatest, most noble Christian, Richard Sibbs, who wrote one of those Puritan paperbacks, The Bruised Reed, says this, The bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery as those were that came to Christ for help. And by misery, he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. For whatever pretenses sin makes, they come to an end when we are bruised and broken. He is sensible of sin and misery, even unto bruising, and seeing no help in himself, is carried with restless desire to have supply from another. 
with some hope, with a little, raises him out of himself to Christ, though he dare not claim any present interest of mercy, this spark of hope being opposed by doubtings and fears rising from corruption makes him as smoking flax, so that both these together, a bruised reed and smoking flax, make up the state of a poor, distressed man. He has no means of supply from himself or the creature and thereupon mourns and upon some hope of mercy from the promise and examples of those that have obtained mercy is stirred up to hunger and thirst after it. I I need you. I mean, you and I might be so very good at admonishing the unruly. But boy, to encourage the faint-hearted, that takes some work. It takes time. It takes patience, great patience. And by the way, I can't leave the Holy Spirit out. I mean, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called in John 14 and John 15 and John 16, the Helper, the one called alongside. He's the capital E Encourager. He's the Encourager. I love what it says in Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. (laughs) We need the peace of the body, don't we? And we gain that peace through the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And our numbers, we trust, shall be multiplied. Let me end with this. How many of you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Good, a number of you have. If I just changed one word, I think you'll understand what Bunyan is talking about when he says the following. Now, I saw in my dream that just as they had finished this conversation with pliable, remember pliable was trying to figure out his faith, right? Uh, Was it worth it to, to go the extra mile? Was it worth it to pursue Jesus Christ to the celestial city? That's pliable. And he's walking along with Christian. And they came to a very miry swamp. In the south, we call that the slough of despond that was in the middle of the plain. And because they were not paying attention to where they were going, they both fell into a bog called the swamp or slough of despond. Here they floundered for a time, covered with mud. And Christian, because of the burden on his back, began to sink in the mire. Pliable says, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Christian said, truly, I do not know. At that, Pliable began to be displeased and angrily said to Christian, is this the happiness you've been telling me about all this time? In other words, you told me that this was the way to the celestial city and and this is the slew of despond and now we're mired in this bog. If we're having this much trouble at the start... 
What can we expect between here and our journey's end? If I get out of this place alive, you can go on without me. And with that, Pliable gave a desperate struggle or two and got himself out of the mire on the side of the swamp that was nearest to his own house, and Christian saw him no more. He was gone. You know what I think of there? Oh, he got choked out by all the worries of the world. Seed that didn't last. Now Christian was left to flounder in the swamp of despond alone. But still he managed to make it to that side of the swamp that was farthest from his own house and next to the wicket gate, although he could not get out because of the burden upon his back. Then I saw in my dream that a man whose name was Encourager, Help, came to him and asked him, What are you doing there? Christian said, Sir, I was told to go this way by a man called Evangelist who directed me also to yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going toward it, I fell in here. Encourager said, But why did you not look for the steps? Christian said, I was so afraid that I wasn't paying attention and I fell in. Then said Encourager, give me your hand. So Christian gave him his hand and Encourager drew him out and set him upon firm ground and told him to go on his way. Now is that not the perfect illustration of an Encourager? Sure it is. And you and I should be one as much as possible. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we at times, myself most especially, are so wonderful at admonishing, not so wonderful with encouragement. And that's why we need what 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 say. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal encouragement and good hope through grace encourage your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May it be so, Father and Son, through the Holy Spirit. Amen.